there's so many people that would be incredible to be in this field, but there's so many blocks for them because the fact is, is right when they get in, they start dealing with discrimination. So until we can change as a community altogether, we're gonna keep pushing people out that deserve a chance to be in it. From Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my new friend and colleague, Chloe Mitzdaki. Chloe and I were recently connected by our mutual friend, Nathan Chun. Here's what Nathan wrote to me. Hi, Caroline. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Chloe Mitzdaki. She specializes in bug bounties and pen testing. Last week, she gave talks at four security conferences, including B-Side Las Vegas and DEF CON. Chloe is a co-founder of Women in Security, and she also teaches girls how to hack. In Las Vegas, she sponsored more than 13 girls to attend the Cyber Woman of the Year Awards. She is an amazing person with a big heart. Chloe, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Caroline, for having me. It is my pleasure. I... Um, I thought I would start out by quoting your LinkedIn profile. Um, it says, Chloe is a security researcher advocate. Since entering the cybersecurity space, she sees security as a humanitarian issue. Can you tell me what is a security researcher advocate? Great question. Um, so a security researcher advocate is someone who is fighting for the rights for hackers. So sometimes people say secure researchers, some people like to use the phrase hackers, and in general I'll use both interchangeably. Um, but basically fighting for safe harbor. I am one of those people that I really do believe that we need to change the situation because companies more and more are starting to trust crowdsourcing for their security, but it also needs to be a bilateral trust agreement amongst the hackers themselves and the companies. So Safe Harbor is a way of doing that. I tend to try to enforce that and try to push forward on Safe Harbor, um, but I also want to change the way that people see hackers, because usually whenever you type in hacker on Google, you'll get like a bunch of images. Usually it's a white male in front of his computer with a black hoodie on, and it's the middle of the night or something, and he has a Red Bull. And this is not necessarily true what a hacker looks like. A hacker could look like you and me. So I try to push the general audience to have a better understanding on that front. Chloe, can you share with me a little bit about your perspective of historically how hackers and security researchers have been treated? And also, what are some of the legal things that have affected the way that different parties treat security researchers? Well, I think in, I think we still have this situation where, you know, 60% of security researchers do not report vulnerabilities because they fear prosecution. And this is something that Amit Elazari was pushing forward in her research when she was at UC Berkeley. But it's a very interesting dynamic because more and more hackers are becoming more aware with online materials and reading documents, but also there's all these like crowds itself. So for example, there's bug bounty forum where everyone kind of helps each other out navigating things as well. One of those issues is definitely making sure you stay in scope. So as long as you're someone who stays in scope, uh, you should be okay. Uh, but I always tell people to keep a paper trail because there have been cases where companies actually go after hackers themselves 
because they found a vulnerability that was in scope. So it's very important to try to avoid that situation by keeping a paper trail. So for example, if something's like you want to double check that everything's in scope. So contact the security personnel over there or whoever is in charge of the vulnerability disclosure program at the company to just make sure that whatever you want to double check that's in scope. So you have that in writing so that can always protect you. But I think right now we still have issues when it comes to the legal landscape uh, because the U.S. laws have not really changed at all. I mean, you have your anti-hacking laws, you have your anti-circumvention laws and acceptable use policy laws. And this is like in every single country around the world. It's just it's different how people get prosecuted. Like in the U.S., we definitely prosecute a lot of hackers. And so it's it's about we need to change laws because the laws right now that we have are preventing from good hackers from doing the stuff that they love to do, which is to keep everyone safe. Cool. Thank you so much. I think that, you know, it is really interesting to consider what are the motivations for security researchers and how does the legal landscape affect those motivations and people's behavior. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Chloe, One of the reasons I really was so excited to have you on the podcast is because you represent a point of view that sees security as a humanitarian issue. Um, And I'd love for you to share with our listeners how you came to see security as a humanitarian issue. Can you tell us a little bit about how did you see the world when you were pursuing your master's in Edinburgh and how did you kind of like connect the dots in your mind between humanitarian efforts and cybersecurity? Yeah. So um, when I was doing my master's in Edinburgh, I was basically was really interested in how do we basically combat terrorism, but in a way where we don't practice torture um, I am one of those people, I believe that if by using actual empathy, like really have empathy for another person, understanding the situation that we can actually prevent situations from occurring. So that was what I wanted to study was how do we prevent suicide bombing? And so one of the things was thinking of, so how do we have that conversation? If they already see us as an enemy, how do we change that perspective? And I think one of the things is that we tend to forget that we're humans there's a deep longing feeling of wanting to help another person out, I think, deep down inside. That was one of the things that I was really focused on, but because of the research itself would have taken me to Afghanistan or Iraq, um, I would freak out my parents. So I actually stepped away from that and I went into microfinance and the impact it has on education rates on children in developing places around the world, but mostly focused in the rural areas of Guatemala. After that, I went, I did my, basically did some management consulting for nonprofits. Um, They were connected to the UN. So when I did UN volunteering, I basically reconnected with them and then they connected me with other nonprofits, helping them out. And when it comes to their marketing and their strategy. And then basically I got kind of lonely because I was traveling all the time, working really, really long hours. And I miss going into like an office space and meeting all these people and hanging out with them. So then I started letting recruiters know that I was open to, you know, a a full-time job in a company instead of doing consulting. And that is when one of them contacted me and it's like, hey, have you ever thought about working for a cybersecurity company? And I'm like, 
not really, but sure, I'll take a look at it. And so um, I got an offer and right when the first two weeks in it, I wanted to learn everything I could about vulnerability management, but not just that, but I also wanted to know more about the hacker community because I didn't want to see them as just black and white. I wanted to understand them. Why do they do what they do? But at the same time, I was pretty convinced at that time that I also had that same curiosity as most hackers do, which is like, I kind of want to know a little bit more. How deep does this go? And so that was when I started realizing, I'm like, I wonder how many nonprofits have security? And then I was thinking to myself, I'm like, I don't think any do. To be honest, you don't have any resources like a startup. You don't have the funds either. And the personnel person, you might have someone who does IT, but doesn't necessarily know they know how to fix things and prevent things from happening. But most importantly, if someone actually does cause a breach and releases a bunch of confidential data from the people that donate, they're not going to want to donate again. And then what ends up happening is shuts down missions. So what's been happening is because there's not enough security support for them and they don't have, they don't even know where to start looking, that what ends up happening is some of these uh, smaller nonprofits are actually doing quite a bit in the community have been shutting down because the donors don't want to give again if their information is going to be leaked. And this was a huge situation. Still is an ongoing situation. So now um, whenever I talk to a nonprofit, I always bring in the security aspect because I see security as a humanitarian issue. If there's black hat hackers out there that are getting into your databases and relieving data knowing that this could shut down your mission and this is these are people these are these are kids these are moms this is dads and this is housing this is food this is health this is education and having that all taken away that's a humanitarian issue because these people need it the most so that's why I see security as a humanitarian issue, because I don't know about you, but I was definitely affected by Equifax. My dad was, my mom was, my family. And that just lets me know once again that, you know, security needs to be seen as one of those fundamental humanitarian situations that we need to really focus on globally. Incredible. I couldn't agree more. I, um, I read your Medium blog, Three Security Steps for Nonprofits to Remain Safe. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could share some of those tips with our listeners today. So I'm going to first go with the ones that are like free basically to do. 2FA, free. Awesome. It's free thing. Um, making your password super long. Um, that means anywhere I like to say go 30 and beyond. And that's the best way I have to go about it. So go 30 and beyond and then change it every month. That's free. Now you can always get a password manager for the organization, but that does cost money. So that could be a situation there if you don't want to spend too much money. But it, it is a good way to keep you and everyone else safe if everyone has that ability of a password manager. Because let's be real, a lot of them reuse the same passwords over and over. Um, the other thing is doing some sort of security trainings. For example, this looks like a phishing email. Do not click on this link. Connect with someone before you open a document that's attached. <laughs> Um, so these are like the very basic things that are free, um, but also being aware that social engineering also comes in hand with hackers as well. So for example, if you are posting photos on Instagram or sharing some details of your personal life publicly on Facebook or Twitter, just note that they're also keeping an eye on that. So they can always do a fake call saying, hey, I'm like this person, I've 
and uh, I need to double check on something. We had like some sort of policy that I got reinforced. I need to get a little bit more info or someone has gone into your account. Like there's so many ways how to do it. So always being aware that you're a social engineer. So be careful when you do anything posting online publicly. Awesome. I think those are great tips for all of us. Um, and I love that you're focused on the nonprofit sector. Um, I think traditionally, uh, there's a lot of cybersecurity focus for really large companies, certainly companies that deal with financial data. Um, I think there's been more of a push recently for small and medium-sized businesses to consider their security as well. Um, certainly, government organizations are thinking about cybersecurity, um, but it's awesome that you have brought your security perspective to the nonprofit sector, um, and I'm so happy to have you talking about that on the podcast today. Thank you. So another thing I actually want to talk to you about is social engineering, and specifically your high school experience. Um, can you share with our listeners your Wi-Fi hacking story? So back in like middle school, I was like in sixth grade in a computer class, and I really wanted to learn how to hack. I saw like a bunch of like action movies, and I thought it was so cool to be able to do such a thing. And also it was pretty badass, I'm not going to lie when you can break things. Um, so I basically went up to the IT teacher and I was like, I want to learn how to hack. I want to be a hacker. And the guy's like, oh, that's so cute, but that's not for you, honey. That's a guy's thing. And so imagine I could have been in it a little bit earlier in life if this guy actually changed his perspective and made it a little bit more inclusive. <laughs> but then in high school, you know, Facebook was like the craze. And so I was trying to get in it, but they the Wi-Fi systems, they blocked all students from being able to access Facebook. And so I was like, okay, so this means I probably need to get on some admin Wi-Fi, so the teacher's Wi-Fi, so that I could check my Facebook. And so I basically was watching each of my teachers in the class and the time they signed in on the computer because they kind of did like this enforcement that every time you log in, you have to re-log in onto the Wi-Fi. So I basically was just watching all the teachers and I know this one teacher kept pulling out a little notebook. And this notebook is basically where the person kept looking at the password because he didn't memorize the password. And so I was like, all right, this is the teacher. This is my suspect. And so <laughs> basically I, I went into classroom after class asking if I, he can help me on some sort of assignment on a well, more like a homework assignment because I'm confused on this question. And then, um, so then he went to the board and when he was walking to the board, it's far away from his desk. And at that moment I grabbed the notebook. I knew exactly because I kept watching to see what page it was on. It was on the last page of the notebook. And then I quickly took a photo of it and then I had the Wi-Fi password. Nice. Yeah. yeah I think that social engineering is such an important security awareness topic for people to understand. Um, it's really interesting to hear your personal story of exactly how you went about it. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah. Chloe, another thing I want to talk to you about is drop labels. Can you share with our audience what is drop labels all about and why did you start it? 
Yeah. So Drop Labels was a nonprofit that I had an idea for because one of the things I realized when I got back from Edinburgh was that I was like basically I had a little gap time where I was teaching special ed kids and I realized during that time that they were dealing with severe bullying or they were the bullies themselves and it was because they've been told certain words and that they believe in them because if an adult keeps saying it over and over to you you will end up believing it or it'll just stay in the back of your mind so I started realizing the labels of like having you know ADD or ADHD dyslexia autistic uh, but not just that but I also noticed that it wasn't just that it was also has something to do with culture and so I started thinking about like my life so I was severely bullied from like middle school and high school really badly bullied so I basically was trying to understand how can we change the dynamics and I thought it was about labels we are labeled Um, People label us, right? And we label ourselves. So how do we bring awareness to each of these labels so then we can understand each other? And so that's when Drop Labels was formed was that it was a way of doing basically through video, basically people sharing their personal experiences of what it's like to be them in their shoes or a certain label that they carry and how that's impacted their life. So it's basically, it's just a sharing of different stories of people dealing with labels. So we have a better understanding that humans are complex. We're not easy. And all of us have our own baggage. And the thing is, is that to be able to understand it, we have to learn how to listen. If you want to understand another person, you want to combat prejudice, you have to first look at yourself. And the best way how to actually deal with it is by listening to other people's stories. And when you hear other people's stories, it makes you think later down the road, am I doing this as well? And that's the most important thing is to have that question. So that's what Drop Labels was created. It was a way to actually look into that situation and to question ourselves, but also bring awareness that other people are dealing with this situation. That's incredible. I think that I think that bullying and labels, especially via social media these days, is something that affects so many people. Um, and it's awesome to know that there are people like you who are sharing stories and putting these ideas out there. Um, I'm curious to know about your thoughts on sort of the intersection between drop labels and your role in starting that nonprofit initiative, as well as your cybersecurity role as a security researcher advocate. What sorts of labels do you think we might benefit from dropping in the cybersecurity industry? There's so many of those labels. What do you think here? But I can first answer the first part, which is basically drop labels gave me a way to use what I studied in Edinburgh around cognitive science and how our brains function because I was studying empathy and how it works. And so basically I took actual cognitive science and I put it into action. And that's how drop labels was created because I wanted to make sure there was evidence as well. And when I almost left InfoSec about a, over a year ago, I basically, because of labels pretty much and being judged, basically I was just like, okay, I need to share what I kind of did with drop labels and try to bring more empathy for us to look at ourselves because it's the old biases of what is someone who looks like insecurity and change that way of thinking. 
I basically started doing this talk on how to fix the diversity gap in cybersecurity. And in there, I actually throw in drop labels videos. I also throw in the cognitive science part of how we process information when we look at each other. So then everyone can have a better understanding of how our brain functions and how we actually have the ability to question every single thing. And so that is how that kind of created was I was like, this, we need a little more empathy in, in uh, InfoSec. And from there, that basically was a way that I put in my past and into the present. But when it comes to InfoSec, I think the labels that we're really dealing with right now that I've been seeing is, is that we have to really combat this idea that people in InfoSec are white males. I think that's a huge situation. The fact that I still get questions almost on a daily basis, which is, why do we need more women in this field? Why do we need that? And I was like, well, I can give you a breakdown of like how your product will not grow unless you have diversity. But at the end of the day, I'm like, why are you even asking this question? It's 2019. This is ridiculous. This shouldn't exist anymore. (laughs) That's like the real brutal answer. There's so many people that would be incredible to be in this field, but there's so many blocks for them because the fact is, is right when they get in, they start dealing with discrimination. So until we can change as a community altogether, we're going to keep pushing people out that deserve a chance to be in it because we don't know what they're capable of doing. But I'm pretty sure they're capable of doing great things for the InfoSec community in the end. I know that you are a huge advocate for diversity in our field. And not only that, but you've actually taken actionable steps to do something about the situation. Can you tell me a little bit about Jason Haddix, your mentor, and the training that you've worked on to help different people learn about Burp Suite? Yeah. So women security or women FOSEC, the statistics is right now 11%. And so 11% of women are in this field. And the reason it's so low is because it's a rotating door. Like women come in, women leave. <laughs> um, and that's because there's no real good practice of inclusion right now. And then the other statistic is that, you know, 4% of hackers in the world are women. And so, and then if you look at a bug bounty, it's pretty much less than 1% are women in bug bounty. So if you think about it, these stats are kind of sad. <laughs> so the, the best way how to combat that is most of the time women that enter uh, InfoSec, they're always told like they're not technical enough or they don't show leadership enough. So I was like, okay, so let's change the statistic. And when I joined forces with Bug Crowd and Haddix was like my, my boss and my mentor, he basically showed me that Burp Street is the most important tool. If you know Burp Suite, you can basically, you can start doing bug bounty. You can do vulnerability disclosure. You can start doing some web app hacking. And Burp Suite is a great tool. And it takes, you know, a few hours to learn the basics. Um, and then just keep going at it and practicing. And then you'll, you'll get there. Um, I usually tell people, if you are really into it, it could take you like three months before you find your first like bug. So basically, I told him I really want to change the situation for women, and he really believes in me. He also is like, yeah, we really should change these statistics. This is really bad. I didn't know it was this bad. (laughs) So then I was like, I have this really cool group via WOSEX at Women's Security. We have a chapter down in Kenya. And so I basically partnered up with her, and I said, do you want a training, a burp suit training? And She's like, yeah. So then Haddix um, basically was like, let's do this. So he did a burp suite training. 
uh, virtual. So then um, these women can learn the very fundamentals of uh, Burp Suite. And it, it's free, you know, Burp Suite can be used completely free. Um, so we taught them the basics there. And then also he, before I actually joined Bucket Crowd, had I still actually believed in trying to get more women in the field, um, the hacking community especially. So he actually went to Day of Security uh, last year. And he did a workshop on Burp Suite as well. And then we also got uh, JP to do one of the sessions at Day of Security in Boston. And then um, I got Jeff Boothby to do one for Women Hackers, which is uh, another basically project that I work on and headed. Uh, it's called Women Hackers. It basically is a private community of women there's about 400 of us now, and it started in like the end of May, early June, and basically it provides like free workshops, trainings, and it's just a really good resource for women to have so they don't feel alone. I think that's one of the main issues right now, feeling very much isolated and alone when you're dealing with being like discriminated or harassed, that's, that's pretty bad. So that's why I'm trying to create all these things to make sure that women don't feel alone, don't leave the field. Because we kind of are working together now, trying to make it better. And now we're actually being a lot more vocal about it, too. <laughs> awesome. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. I think that's really interesting. To close out our conversation today on a little bit of a lighter topic, um, you and I are both pet owners. I think we love our pets dearly. Tell me about your dog. Oh, Sherlock. Okay, so Sherlock is a year and two months old, um, almost a year and three months old. Um, so Sherlock, she is a rescue Shiba, you know. I'm pretty sure she might be a little mixed with something because she's a little bit bigger than most Shibas. But she is an incredibly smart dog that you cannot mess around with. Like she, It's like playing a chess game every single day with her. <laughs> but she keeps me on my toes all the time. Yeah, she's amazing. Tell me a little bit about yours. Oh my gosh. So I've got two. My Newton is eight years old. He was my first baby before I ever had human babies. And he is a pit bull mix. I think pits get a bad rep. You know, in San Francisco, uh, I would dress him in like cute little sweaters. And like, actually, there was a specific neon pink hoodie that I used to dress him in. And I would walk around the city with him and people would treat me and him differently when he was dressed up than when he was just like walking around as a dog <laughs> without clothes, the way the dogs are supposed to be. Um, so it's fascinating um, how, you know, the label situation applies yeah. to our canine companions as well. Um, yeah. And then I had a kid and then my poor dog kind of got the shaft. And uh, oh. so we decided we were like, we need a doggy friend for Newton. And so we have Ping, um, who is now two years old, 75 pounds of Rottweiler mix. Um, and they're just the best ever, the absolute best ever. No, so, yeah, it's, that's um, interesting about the pit bull thing. Everyone has this bad idea of pit bulls, but in reality, they should be scared of Shivas. <laughs> um, they're really cute and cuddly. They're cute and cuddly, um, and I love Sherlock. Don't get me wrong, but she is a guard dog. I mean, like, I'd come over and she wouldn't stop barking at him. Like, no, you're not leaving this area. No, this is my human's area. No, you're not getting. Nope, you're getting far away from my home. Like. She's very protective, and it, it, it's it's awesome. kind of good to have that 
but yeah, I'm probably going to get her a companion um, probably next year. And she needs a Watson, you know? We need a Watson. So we'll probably get another. Totally. But yeah. Oh, Watson and Sherlock. I love that. Yeah. Then it's Chloe, thank you so much for. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's going to be so cute. I can just, I can see the Instagram hashtag right oh, yeah. now. Um, Chloe, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Caroline. It was wonderful to be on it with you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.